morning journey. Good to see you all. My name's Chris. Glad to be with you. Glad you're here. Glad we get to do this today, even though it falls on my wife Kate and I's 12th anniversary. I still decided to show up. Thank you. Yep. I knew that I could get you to clap for that. And yeah. Yay us, right? Thanks, God, too. Uh, speaking of my wife, she lives in Phoenix, and so do I. And so this Sunday is my second to last Sunday as the teaching pastor at Journey Church. A group of us in Phoenix are currently in the process of planting a church called Kaleo, and we'll begin our official Sunday gatherings in September, so I'll transition on out of here and do that. But I'm not gone yet, so you're stuck with me today. And if you already showed up, it'd be rude to walk out now, so please don't. Uh, And then my last Sunday is August 18th, so... Here's what's going down today, though. Today, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling Summer in the Psalms, and it's just what you thought it was. It is a summer in the Psalms. For the rest of the summer, we'll maneuver our way through a bunch of different Psalms. There are 150 to choose from. We will not be able to get through all of them, uh, just a handful as we conclude the summer. You might remember from last week a little bit about the Psalms. The Psalms are this. The Psalms are poetry, and the Psalms are prayer. And so the Psalms in and of themselves then are not a tool for getting something that we want, but rather they're for helping us along the way of learning how to be with God and how to become who God invites us to be. In this giant section of our Bibles, all of these 150 Psalms, they've been prayed by the people of God for thousands of years. So we get to join in that tradition. This prayer tradition existed before Jesus It was taught and practiced by Jesus and then it still exists in the church worldwide today as we're about to practice. What a beautiful thing to watch that just span the generations and connect us to a way of praying. So when we join in the praying of these poetic prayers, it means we're following in a pathway that people have laid before us in which we bring all of our emotion, all of our experience to a God who invites us to share with him and who longs to speak. And so often the Psalms then come back as a way of answering God as he speaks to us from the depths of his created world. And so if in fact the Psalms are prayer and we're gonna meander our way through Psalm 139 today, it seems fitting that we would pray it together. Talk a lot about it, but maybe we could do it as well. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read Psalm 139 as a prayer for us this morning, and then we'll make our way into the depths of reality that come up out of this very unique and meaningful psalm. So let's pray Psalm 139 together. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, Even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. 
To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred. For your enemies are my enemies. Search me. Oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come here this morning. We know that you are already present among us. And so we welcome you. We invite you to teach us, to shape us, to transform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. I pray that if there's anything that would hinder us from hearing from you this morning, that you'd help us just humbly lay that before you and have ears to hear. Pray for myself, that you'd give me your words to speak, that the words that I say would be for you and from you would make much of you and make you known. We do this for you, the one who loves us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Quite the psalm, huh? Quite the psalm. Starts out so beautifully, a couple different beautiful and challenging things happen and then it gets a little weird there for a minute and I'll address that, but not yet. And then it culminates in this call, inviting God to search us out and know us, which really means that the psalm comes full circle. At the beginning of this psalm, it really is all about being known by an ever-present God. And so let me read these first 10 verses to you again. Really, I just hope again that this would all settle into us. We prayed it out and now we would study it in both ways it would take root, grow deep and connect us to the love of God. Here's how the psalmist began this psalm. He says, oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. The psalmist is making it quite clear. You are known by God. And that can be, quite honestly, simultaneously comforting and frightening that there is nowhere you can go to escape the presence of God, the psalmist says. This psalm begins with this language of examination and knowing everything about us. And, and my mind is immediately drawn to the imagery 
of my wife examining a patient in the emergency department. When Kate examines a patient, as well as I know, I don't show up there. These are just my ideas. I could play a doctor on TV is what I say. They need to tell her as much of the truth as possible, though, when she begins to examine them. They, they, they need to be able to say what's going on as best they can to her so that she can help them. She might know what's wrong with them, but she also needs their participation. And I think of that as the way in which the psalmist begins this. The invitation is there. Join the Lord in the examination of your heart. And so even just for a second, in the middle of the sermon as we continue to practice praying the Psalms, let's just pause for one moment. And in the quiet of your own heart, would you just invite the Lord to examine your heart as we continue this? Take just pause, one moment. Amen. Verse four, verse four. As our hearts are being examined, it paints a picture for us of the power of our words. If God knows what we speak before we speak it, then it's true that our words reveal who we are. Why do we say what we say? What are we saying? Again, our hearts are being examined as the psalmist writes this because our words communicate who we are. As the psalm continues, we find these themes of being known by God merging together with the ever-present presence of God. This is a God who goes before and who follows behind. Essentially, the witness of God that we already sang about surrounds us. God is ever with us. I get this picture of my wife and I hiking with our dog, Maya, when I think of this. There, I'm like in the picture twice. Okay, there, okay. There I am walking, that's Maya, our dog, so it's a water trail. And then my wife, Kate, is taking the picture and I think about how I'm out in front in this case. So the dog knows the way. This is where we're going. This is where we're headed. And my wife's behind to make sure the dog doesn't leg behind or turn off chasing a lizard down a path over here, whatever it is she might do. This picture that she is contained within us as we walk is this picture of a God who goes before us and follows behind us. Where can you go from God? Well, apparently nowhere, because he's everywhere, and he's the source of all creation. And if that's to be true, then perhaps we can ask for eyes to see this, that he is everywhere, that he is all around us, that he's among us and with us in everything that he's created. But the poet of Psalm 139 doesn't feel like even that's adequate to describe the ever-present presence of God. They take it a step farther and they write, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. You see, it's this expansiveness as high as the psalmist could imagine to the heavens where like certainly God would be there. Psalmist says, yeah, he's there too. And then, Imagining the, the deepest of depths, the grave. God's there too. Which again can be simultaneously comforting and frightening. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul who feeds off of this poetic language of the psalmist when he writes to a church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. 
He puts his own poetic prayer down and he says, may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love is. He's building on the tradition of the Psalms that God's love stretches everywhere, even beyond what you imagined it could do. It's vast, it's huge, it's big. And then the psalmist says this, verse 11. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. At first it was heaven and the grave and now it's dark and light. God's contained in all of that. Goes on writing, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And I think that as we catch that middle part there, the power of that imagery probably isn't lost on us. I would say even more so, it seems as if it's almost shouting into our current present day climate in which pundits galore dichotomize the conversation of pro-life versus pro-choice. This section of Psalm 139 is often used as a go-to for many who define themselves as passionately pro-life. And pastorally speaking, which is what I'm doing, for about a month and a half more. I believe it would be disingenuous for me to move through this psalm without taking a moment to wade into the waters of what it means from a Christian perspective to be pro-life. And so I don't speak as an expert, nor do I even claim the titles that our dichotomized culture claim. I'm learning and in the process of learning. And really I intend to initiate a conversation and that's the key word, a conversation. One that would be ongoing, and one that would be filled with some very important principles that we'll encounter along the way. So I join all of us, I suppose, if we're going to approach a conversation like this as a humble work in progress. So here's what I do know. The scriptures never speak about abortion specifically. So to simply call on these verses here or other verses in the New Testament as the sole source of a position would be misguided. But we do have a handful of texts that poetically declare God's care for all of life, even before birth or conception. That's what we've encountered in this Psalm. And so in order to form our views, we have to pay attention then if the scriptures don't say it explicitly to an ethic formed by Jesus and implemented by the New Testament church and the early church as they tried to live out this mandate that Jesus set before them in the way that they were called to live. And Jesus took into view all of scripture as well and then spoke the way forward. So here's how we'll talk about that. Richard Hayes sets the tone when he says this. He says, whenever new life begins to develop in any pregnancy, 
The creative power of God is at work. And Jesus Christ, who was the original agent of creation, has already died for the redemption of the life in utero. The normal response in scripture to pregnancy is one of rejoicing over a gift from God. That's, that's the typical theme we see in scripture, even when that pregnancy is unexpected. But still, it's not speaking specifically to the conversation we find ourselves facing in 2019. And so I wanna look at three different principles, I suppose we could call them, that might guide us in how we would engage in this. The first one might catch you off guard, but it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that parable is found in Luke 10, 25 through 37. You'll remember it is the one where this lawyer shows up asking Jesus what he needs to do. He's kept all of the commands. What does he need to do? And Jesus says, well, you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, yeah, well, who's my neighbor? Which essentially is a very limiting question. Jesus says, that's not the question you're supposed to ask. And so then he tells a story. And if you remember the story, it's about this guy who got beat up, was left for dead. A couple people passed. A third one, the most unlikely character in the whole story, the Samaritan, who would not have been thought of as good, shows up, takes care of him, bandages him, takes him to a place to be cared for. And Jesus then says back to this lawyer, which one acts like a neighbor to the other? He says, the one who shows mercy. Jesus says, yes, go and do likewise. To begin having a conversation like this is to be people who show mercy as our first move. That that's how we engage in the conversation. We don't limit it with other questions. The second thing I want us to look at is the community in Acts. In the book of Acts, we have this picture of the early church forming. And there's two occasions, Acts 2, 42 through 47, and Acts 4, 32 through 35, where we get a picture of how the community of Jesus' followers came together. What happened is they would come together united as one, and there was none among them who had any need. They cared for one another sacrificially. They gave away whatever it was they had for the sake of the other, and that's how the community existed together united in that, following the model of Jesus set before them. So Richard Hayes goes on and notes that if the community is to assume responsibility to care for the needy, that within the church, there should be no justification for abortion on economic grounds or on the ground of incapability for the mother to care for the child. That's a lofty call. And perhaps we've lost that as a church a place that often anyone maybe who's even considering an abortion is met instead with shame, guilt, hate? What if we were instead a place that opens up with mercy and says, well, we will help you meet your need if that's what the issue is. If it's economic, if you're not prepared, come and join our family and we will do this together. That's the picture of the church that Jesus set forward. And I think that when we look at that and we evaluate what a community looks like, right, this is on me too. It's not just like, it's on all of us. But I think that would be a giant step forward for what the church is to be throughout the world. And I'm not claiming 
that I even know how to make this all happen. We're beginning a conversation here today. We're talking about it in a very specific way so that it might continue because I bet there's people here among us who can help us make that happen. But I do believe that as a community of faith, we're called to provide support, any kind that's necessary for both the man and the woman to assume their roles as parents. And we would begin in that place. And I think at this point, we can't just simply go, okay, and nod our heads. Maybe you're not nodding your head, by the way. But if you are, we must, as the psalmist does, actually let the Lord examine our hearts. So we pause for a moment and let the Lord examine our hearts and invite him to lead us along the path of life as the psalm ends. And then there's like this one final principle I wanna raise up. And it's the idea that we are to imitate Christ. The apostle Paul, he writes this over and over again in a bunch of different letters to a bunch of different faith communities. He says to them, this is the way forward to imitate the ways of Christ. And if you're anything like me, you've probably often experienced that more as an individual command. Like you personally go and do that. But every time Paul wrote it down, he wrote it to a whole group of people. He was saying, no, all of you together imitate Christ. So then we ask, well, what is it that he did? He was one who sacrificed his life. He always extended welcome to children, to women in need. Can we be the type of community that when a, a crisis pregnancy occurs, and there's a lot of questions happening around that, that says you are welcome here. We will lay our lives down for you. Whatever it is you need, we will join you in providing it. Will we be a community that bears a burden together? And again, I, I think the church has often fallen short in this capacity, and we have a lot of room to grow because I think the whole conversation, at least from a upper up here political conversation would look a lot different if the church was modeling this kind of love, acceptance and support. So there was a group not long ago of Methodist pastors and they all got together and they said, it's probably time for us to rededicate ourselves to the way of Jesus as it pertains to this conversation. And so they made uh, an issue of pledges and one of their pledges reads like this, and, and perhaps this is something that we would even just initially begin pledging to as a community of people. This is what they wrote. We pledge with God's help to become a church that hospitably provides safe refuge for the so-called unwanted child and mother. We will joyfully welcome and generously support with prayer, friendship, and material resources both child and mother. This supports includes strong encouragement for the biological father to be a father indeed to his child. Beginning in a place in which they're open and accepting to someone in need. That's what they're calling for. So let us be a community who sacrificially welcomes and supports, who imitates Christ, who acknowledges that God is in fact the creator of all life that's giving all life worth. And then let us lean into all of the uncertainties and challenges that follow because that's the reality on the other side of that. It's a lot easier to bark rhetoric across the internet 
than it is to open up our homes for someone. Let us be people who love children and love mothers alike with the love of God and let's let the way in which we love tell the story where hate-filled rhetoric flows all too easily. It's an intense call. It would be a whole shift in a lot of culture in our world. But I pray that this would be a move that we could make as followers of Jesus. And even as I I pray that to be sown, we begin that conversation here right before I leave. Um, There's still another reality to all of this. And this this is what that reality is. The loss of any child that God knit together is devastating. And any attempt to create space for the grief to connect, connected to this is gonna cost us something. And so what we're doing is Rafa Ministry here at Journey will host a workshop on August 15th that is called Loss of the Unborn, Ways of Walking Through Grief. And in holding this space, creating this space, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that the loss of the unborn through miscarriage, through stillbirth, through abortion, through similar circumstances, whatever it might be, is desperately challenging, but little recognized as a form of grief. We just wanna create space to navigate that grief and loss. Deeper still, Many of us have never been shown how to, how to develop or learn from a theology of loss, how God might meet us in that, how God might form community around that. So we're just creating some space for that to happen. This is a workshop and a conversation for those who are grieving or for those who long to support women and family members who have endured the loss of a child. We'll cover a, a lot of spectrum there. It won't be to make a point. It will be to come together as a community so you can look to be involved in that. And then I think there's one last element that comes out in this part of the Psalm, right? We, we read that darkness and light are the same to God. So in the darkness of the womb, God is working and creating the creative stamp of God is present there. But the reality is that after birth, for every single person who walks this planet, The creative stamp of God, the image of God does not diminish. It is still present. And so we have to be just as passionate and just as welcoming and just as sacrificial for all who are in need, all who are on the margins, all who are being oppressed. That's the kind of community that Jesus was fashioning and forming. And again, it's a hard, hard call. And so without any way to actually transition out of that, here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, 17. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Sounds good right now. Then the psalmist writes, O God, If only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred for your enemies are my enemies. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? (laughs) 
verses 17 and 18, they're amazing in the sense that they follow all of that and we have this all-knowing, all-powerful, always-present God who cares about each of his human creatures. You're like, yeah. And then it gets dark real fast. Even when we prayed it together at the beginning and I got to those verses, I was kind of like, ah, I don't really want to. So here's what's unique about that. This psalm and the psalms in general, they are poetry and they are prayers. They are a place in which the people of God can express the fullness of everything that they experience to God and God will receive it. It doesn't mean he's gonna like it. He might invite you to change, but he will receive it. He will hear it. He wants you to express it. Pour out before him what really is going on. I would imagine that every single one of us have found ourselves at some point in our life crying out to God, ticked off, angry, hurt, frustrated. This is what the Psalms show us we can do. We can bring all of ourselves to God. And so here what we do is we encounter the poet's righteous indignation, a real life wrestling with the wickedness that the poet encounters. That seems relatable to me. Interestingly though, it isn't the final word, this Psalm right here on enemies. I don't know if you've heard of Jesus, but he comes along and he has a whole different thing to say. And he says, love your enemies. And the Psalmist would have been like, oh, close. But what happens is the psalm is intended to be a psalm together. Because after this indignant rage that the psalmist has in the middle of all of this beautiful poetry, they close it out with a unique invitation because they know that God has the final word. So here's what they write in the last two verses. After they say, yes, I hate them with total hatred for your enemies are my enemies. It reads, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You see, the psalmist sets for this full circle movement from the beginning. The Lord examines and knows every single thing about us. He's everywhere. He's ever present. And the psalmist concludes by saying, yes, if I've ever gotten off track, point it out and correct it and will put me back on the path of everlasting life. What do you think God probably pointed out first when he finished that psalm? And I love the way that the psalmist holds all of that together for us. Every spectrum of humanity and reality present in all of that. And we meander our way through it and we experience all of the, the emotions in life with the psalmist. It starts to connect to different experience we're having in our own lives or we've had. And we find ourselves engaging with the God of whom the psalmist writes. So what I just wanna give us a chance to do is engage with this God. I wanna give you an opportunity to let him have the last word as he searches you and knows you. 
I want you to invite him to test you and reveal anything in you that might offend him. I want you to invite God to lead you along the path of everlasting life. So we'll just take a few moments where you can sit with God himself. He's already here among us. He longs to speak more to you than you ever would have wanted him to speak to you. So take a few moments. I'll read these last two verses one more time and then give you that space. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you are a God who's with us. That you are a God whose love extends always farther beyond than we could imagine it could. Pray that we would receive it, that we would know it, that we would trust you as a God who loves us to examine our hearts, to search us, to test us, to know us, to point out anything in us that offends you. And God, I pray that then we would turn back to you and let you lead us along the way of life. I pray that as we know your love that meets us like this, that has space for all of the plethora of human emotions that we experience, that we would be filled so that we might go and express and live out this love to the world. I pray that we would become, maybe not overnight, but we would begin the process of becoming a community of people that sacrificially loves all who are in need. That we would give not just our prayers, but our friendship and our material resources to serve those who need it. I pray that you would prepare us to be uncomfortable. You would prepare us to be challenged, that you would prepare us to be uncertain. And in the midst of all of that, that we would trust you, a God who promises to go before us and follow behind us. The God who is with us always. May we be those people in this world who trust you and love like you. For your glory, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.